0: This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA Michael Morell. Brought to you by Palantir Technologies. Foundational software of tomorrow delivered today.
1: As long as this current supreme leader is in power and Iran's endgame hasn't shifted, meaning they haven't made the decision to pursue the North Korea route and weaponize, they're, they're still in pursuit of the Japan route, that it makes eminent sense for them to, to revive. So I, I would argue that it's more likely than not, at some point, the deal is revived, although I'm not arguing that it's it's imminent, and I, and I think it will require a change of U.S. strategy, to, or a change of U.S. tactics to to, to get the deal revived. Kareem
2: Sajapur is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he focuses on Iran and U.S. foreign policy toward the Middle East. Kareem, who has been on our show before, was previously an analyst with the International Crisis Group based in Tehran and Washington. He joins us today to talk about a potential new nuclear deal with Iran. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Kareem, welcome back to our show. It's great to have you on Intelligence Matters again.
1: It's always great to be with you, Michael. Thank you.
2: So, Kareem, let's jump right in here. In mid-August, it looked like we were close, perhaps very close to a deal that would return the United States and Iran to the 2015 nuclear deal, the so-called JCPOA, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. But at the last minute, the Iranians made it. Additional demands and it now looks like, you know, the talks are stalled yet again I'm wondering why the you know, why the back-and-forth with the Iranians? Why did they appear in August to accept the deal? Was that just the negotiators? You know, why did they flip-flop? You know, what's what's your sense of what's going on in Tehran as they think about the deal?
1: Uh, Michael, I'm always reminded of uh, Warren Buffett's famous investment advice. He says, you know be Be greedy when others are fearful and be fearful when others are greedy. And in the Iranian context, I I often think, you know, be pessimistic when others are overly optimistic and be optimistic when others are overly pessimistic. The reason I say this is I think that when we in the West, the United States or European partners appear and we say publicly we think a deal is, is imminent, I think that the Iranians probably feel, okay, we can try to extract more concessions because they really badly want this deal. We can try to to get some more in return in exchange. And so on one hand, I think, you know, when we're overly optimistic, that kind of makes them get a little more greedy. At the same time, I think, you know, history has proven we have a 43-year case study of the Islamic Republic. And the instances in which they've compromised, you can really count them on one hand. It's when they've been under very significant duress and they feel that, you know, perhaps the window for a deal is closing. If they feel that the JCPOA, the nuclear deal, is in their back pocket and they can, it's on the table, they can get that whenever they want to, they have no fear that that opportunity is closing. I think that they have a sense of complacency, perhaps no sense of urgency, and they can continue to try to extract more concessions. So in many ways, Michael, I, I think that although this is a negotiation about a a very, you know, large nuclear program. What is driving these negotiations, in my view, from certainly the Iranian end, it's not driven by economic imperatives. It's not really driven by even, you know, by defense imperatives. I think this negotiation is much better understood through the prism of of psychology and politics. So, Kareem, I just want to pick up on two things you
2: said. One is that, you know, they only make concessions when they're under duress. So they don't feel that they're under enough duress now
1: in my view there's a there's a clear formula when you look at the as I said the instances in which Iran is compromised over the last four decades most recently being the nuclear deal of 2015 I think three boxes need to be checked one they need to be faced with significant multilateral pressure. So not just unilateral US pressure, but you know they need to feel that they don't have an out card in, in Beijing and in Moscow and Europe. Uh, number two, it requires direct US engagement, US resolve. And number three, I think you have to articulate to Iran a concrete limited end game. What that means is that if you aspire for a maximalist end game, you know one to totally eliminate their nuclear program. You have ten out of ten goals, you're not gonna you're gonna get zero out of ten. And so I would say right now, we have articulated to them that our end game is simply a revival of the nuclear deal, nothing more, nothing less. I think there has been direct US engagement, although the Iranians have refused to meet directly with U.S. officials, after the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, the Supreme Leader, outlawed direct contacts with the United States, and we, we essentially accepted that, which I'm not sure was the right approach. But, but I would argue that they don't feel a sense of economic urgency for various reasons. Number one, I think you know, the sanctions against them are pretty onerous, but they haven't really been enforced, and that um, you know, Iran's oil exports have, have gone up quite significantly. They're exporting a lot to China. And you know, also the broader geopolitical context in 2022 is different than it was in 2015 when the JCPOA was signed. It is more difficult for the United States to work with China and Russia toward a common end. But I would argue that certainly it is in the interests of China and our European partners to have this deal re- revived. In the case of Russia, I think that they perhaps have have different interests. They don't. I don't think it behooves Russia to see Iran emerge from economic isolation and start to compete with Russian global oil and gas markets.
2: You know, Kareem, you also said something really interesting when you said this is really not about the nuclear deal. This is about psychology. Does it go, does the psychology point go beyond just kind of a negotiating strategy? Is it deeper than that?
1: Yes, I definitely think that psychology and politics are important prisms through which to understand these negotiations. So in the political context, you're dealing with an Iranian government that is you know, likely in the coming years going to be undergoing a, a leadership transition. The current Supreme Leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, is 83 years old. He's one of the longest serving autocrats in the world. There's constant rumors about his Poor health, including you know, as we speak, there's there's rumors about it. I don't. I'm not arguing that he's on his deathbed, but I I do think that, you know, the, the the system in Iran is is already kind of covertly anticipating what is going to be the impact of this transition, and you have powerful forces that Khamenei himself has appointed over the years, senior Revolutionary Guard commanders who believe that, it's in their interests and in the interests of these hardliners to preserve this atmosphere of hostility with the United States. They've benefited from, you know, security forces tend to benefit from an atmosphere of insecurity. And so they don't want to be entangled into diplomatic agreements with the West, with the United States. And so those forces have, have certainly played a role in trying to prevent these negotiations from succeeding, even though that's cost the country an enormous amount of money according to even, you know, rough calculations, if you look at both the sunk costs of Iran's nuclear program and the the lost economic opportunities in the form of sanctions, you know, even a conservative estimate is that it's cost the country over $200 billion, um, you know, for a nuclear program that provides less than 1% or around 1% of Iran's energy needs. So the politics of it is very important. It's a challenge for the United States to have a kind of a positive sum negotiation with an adversary that really has a zero-sum worldview. Um, I think from the vantage point of the Iranian government, they at the moment believe that the Biden administration has telegraphed that they're totally committed to reviving this deal and that they haven't articulated any plan B. And so from the Iranian vantage point, they don't feel a sense of urgency to, to compromise, even though, as I said, this uh, a lack of, of a deal, the, the sanctions which Iran is experiencing have caused the country, the people of Iran, you know, they've caused enormous hardship. They've, they've cost the country an enormous amount of money. But the economic well-being of the people of Iran has never been, you know, the first or even uh, uh, secondary concern or driving force, decision-making factor of the Islamic Republic.
2: You know, Kareem, you talked about the supreme leader and his age and rumors about his health, and you know it reminds me that that ever since two thousand three, when Iran stepped back from an actual nuclear weapons program as opposed to an enrichment uranium enrichment program, which we're talking about now, that he's been risk averse, quite risk averse regarding actually building a weapon. And you know, the assessment of, of all these analysts in the world is that they're not interested in getting a weapon, they're interested in getting to the threshold of a weapon. And I'm wondering, is your sense that, is there any debate on that in Iran? And And what's the risk when he dies that Iranian policy with regard to an actual weapon could change?
1: You know, as you said, Mike, Our friend CIA Director Bill Burns has said, even somewhat recently, that um, the CIA's assessment hasn't changed. They don't see any evidence that Iran is actually going to make a mad dash towards weaponizing their nuclear program. The model that, you know, it's often referred to, Iran's ambitions, is is the Japan model, to have a nuclear weapon's capability to eventually kind of inch towards being a screwdriver turn away from having a, a nuclear weapon, but to not actually Cross that threshold like North Korea and detonate a bomb, and you know at age 83, Ayatollah Khamenei is perhaps not going to change tack. You know that's that's the strategy that he's employed over the last two decades, and you know perhaps he's unlikely to make a rash move. But as you said, there's no guarantees that the next Iranian leader is going to have the same calculations. And you know when you look at at history over the last two decades you could see how, um, you know, an Iranian military commander could make an argument that it perhaps behooves the regime to actually change strategies and and start to weaponize their program. Uh, You look at the example of of Iraq, you know, Saddam Hussein gave up his nuclear program, made him vulnerable to U.S. invasion. Likewise, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya gave up his nuclear program, made him vulnerable to to NATO invasion. Ukraine gave up the nuclear program after the collapse of the Soviet Union made made them vulnerable to, to Russian invasion. Whereas, you know, North Korea, despite being one of the, the most repressive regimes on earth, has continued to stay around, because they, in part because they have a nuclear weapon. So it's easy to see how, you know, an Iranian revolutionary guard commander could argue for weaponizing their program. But I also think that the Iranians are probably mindful of the fact that their program has been pretty heavily penetrated by US intelligence by Israeli intelligence and there's been remarkable amount of sabotage operations whether that's you know explosions happening in Iran's nuclear facilities or the assassination of top Iranian nuclear scientists so i don't think it's as simple as iran simply making that decision that they're going to weaponize and getting easily from point A to point B, I think if they, if they do decide one day, if a future Iranian leader decides they do want to, to pursue nuclear weapons, you know, I, I, I don't think it's going to be easy. And it, and it could well trigger either a U.S. or, or Israeli military attack. Kareem, I want to
2: shift to the U.S. side of things, right? You said earlier that the Iranians believed that we are desperate for a deal, And I'm wondering if it's your assessment that that is the case. And I ask that because, you know, this isn't the greatest deal on the planet. This deal is not as good as the 2015 deal. The politics aren't great here for the president. He's got 14 senators in his own party that are opposed to the deal. He's got Iranian attempts to assassinate a former senior Trump administration official in retaliation for the Killing the U.S. killing of Qasem Soleimani, the head of the IRGC Quds Force, so this is not a you know this is there's not a lot of positive things here. So are the Iranians right when they think we're desperate for this deal?
1: Michael, I wouldn't use the word desperate. I would use the word that I would use the word committed. There's a perception um, in Tehran that the United States is is absolutely committed to reviving the JCPOA, and and I think that is so far proven to be an accurate assessment. We've continued to say that there's no good alternative to reviving the deal. We have been reluctant to articulate any plan B. And you know every month we've said to the Iranians that time is running out, this is the last chance. But you know, when you say that for a year and a half, The Iranians, you know, perhaps don't take it to heart because they feel like, as I said, that the JCPOA is always on the table for them and they can just, you know, continue to try to hold out for more concessions and hope that we will cave. But but you are right that the political context in 2022, I said the geopolitical context is different now than it was in 2015 when the nuclear deal was signed. And also the domestic political context is different. And one of the things that's different now compared to 2015 is that the Biden administration has zero illusions that a nuclear deal with Iran may strengthen moderate forces in Tehran or may help lead to a U.S.-Iran rapprochement. In 2015, the Obama administration did have hopes that, um, you know, this could bring about a different U.S.-Iran relationship, almost, you know, perhaps lead to a Nixon-to-China type rapprochement. Secretary Kerry, I think, uh, held out hope for that. And and, uh, I think to some extent, President Obama did as well. And I don't think that there's any illusions now that the Biden administration has. And as you mentioned, I think for the president, he realizes that this deal is probably going to be, if the deal is revived, the impact is probably net negative for him in a domestic political context, meaning every single Republican, with the exception of Rand Paul, will probably Opposed the deal's revival and some key Democratic allies like Senator Robert Menendez, Chuck Schumer, who you know both voted against the deal in 2015, are not enthusiastic about it this time. So you never win points in the context of domestic American politics by appearing to ease pressure against a regime whose official slogan is Death to America.
2: We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Kareem.
1: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best... To let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie dot com slash to watch Sleeping Dogs now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie dot com slash
2: So, Krim, I want to come back to this point about the Iranians trying to get revenge, right, for the death of Qassem Soleimani. You know, it's absolutely clear that they have their eyes on former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, former National Security Advisor John Bolton, and some others. The Iranians are clearly able to separate the nuclear deal from getting that revenge. You know, how do you think we should think about that?
1: I know it's a major concern right now for the Biden administration how to deter Iranian plots to assassinate former Trump administration officials like Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, former National Security Advisor John Bolton. There's also, there's been ongoing plots to assassinate Iranian human rights activists in the United States. A close friend of mine, Masi Ali Judge, she's one of Iran's Top women's rights activists. There's been attempts on her life. She lives in Brooklyn, New York, and you know I'm told that so far U.S. attempts to privately relate to Iran that there will be a major penalty for this has not deterred Iran, and that the, these 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 plots are ongoing. And I think you know in the event that Iran succeeds in either killing a former senior U.S. official or killing an Iranian American civil rights activists on US soil, this is going to probably trigger major debate in the Biden administration. How do you react to that? You have to do something. If you simply sit on your hands and, and don't react, uh, Iran will probably feel like they can do it again, they feel emboldened that you know they can act with impunity. And you know, we witnessed this with Vladimir Putin over the last decade. That you know if you he waltzed into into to georgia and to crimea and to syria without penalty and you know that led him to think that he could attack ukraine with impunity and you know iran is has done this in the regional context as well right they feel they prevailed in syria and iraq and lebanon and yemen so at the moment you know both regionally and vis-a-vis you know adversaries in terms of these plots to avenge the life of qasem soleimani there's a danger that iran feels like it, it can act with impunity and so obviously we want to do everything in our power to deter them. So far, that hasn't worked. And so the question is, if indeed they they succeed, you know, how do we react? There's not a whole lot of precedent for that.
2: So Kareem, I want
1: to ask a question about kind of the bigger context here and
2: Iran's malign behavior in the region. You know, it, it was my sense in 2015 that once the Obama administration signed the deal that they sort of closed the Iran file. They felt they were done with Iran rather than pushing back against what the Iranians were doing in the region, which our allies wanted us to do. And I actually remember the president giving a speech where he was defending the Iran deal by saying, look, we made, we made arms control agreements with the Soviet Union throughout the Cold War. And we, we did it because we were, you know, that was in our interests. And what struck me was, you know, that's absolutely true, but at the same time we were making arms control agreements, we were pushing back against Soviet aggression, you know, all over the world. And so I'm wondering if the Biden administration really understands that if they make a nuclear deal, there is still an Iran issue to be dealt with.
1: It's a great question, Michael, and I uh, recommend to people the the great work of the Yale historian John Gaddis, about America's Cold War strategy, in his book *Strategies of Containment*, he talks about the three-pronged approach that worked vis-a-vis the Soviet Union. You know, as you, as you mentioned, you know, arms control is one element of it. Countering their external ambitions is another element, and there's a there's a third element, which is also trying to support the the forces of, of change. In the case of Ronald Reagan, it was within within Russia, and in the case of Iran, obviously it's supporting those inside Iran who want to see a different form of government. And, and and so that's why even though the Obama administration said this is only a non-proliferation agreement, the reality is that you have to have a broader strategy because what ends up happening is that in the context of doing a non-proliferation deal with Iran, you unencumber them financially. So you you know giving them a major cash injection, you know, perhaps tens, if not even hundreds of billions of dollars if they're able to sell their oil freely on the open open market. And, you know, some of that money obviously goes to Iran's regional proxies, whether that's, you know, Houthis in Yemen, Shia militias in Iraq, Lebanese Hezbollah, Bashar Assad. And if you talk to U.S. partners in the Middle East, whether it's Israel or, or Gulf countries, what they'll tell you is that they're less worried about being nuked by Iran and they're more worried about the drones, the missiles, the increasing precision rockets which Iran and its proxies are using on a daily basis. And so, yes, it's not something which we can, if, we, if we're if we able to revive the nuclear deal, that's not the finish line. You know, it needs to be embedded in a broader strategy vis-a-vis Iran. I think that, like any administration, there are, are different views within it. You know, there's some who, who believe that the Middle East and Iran are not really a priority. Uh, and the only priority is to, to revive the nuclear deal. And then, you know, the focus needs to, to be on, on Russia and China but you know as you know better than, than than myself um you don't have the luxury of just you know focusing on one or two regions when they're when you're the US government and the worldview of the Iranian government is not going to change it's been consistent for 43 years i, I would argue they've had more consistent and enduring grand strategy than any government in the world over the last four decades and and you know one of those strategies is to help bring down the u.s-led world order you know they're willing to partner with with anyone whether that's china russia venezuela north korea in order to do that we've seen iran openly side with russia and it's uh, after its invasion of ukraine and so um You know, much as we would like to to de-escalate with Iran and not have an adversarial relationship with Iran, you know, you can't make amends with a regime which needs you as an adversary for its own internal legitimacy.
2: We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us.
1: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you.
2: So, Karim, you you mentioned our allies and partners in the Middle East. Is there a human of views there about the deal, or are there some important differences?
1: Well... I think there's a difference between our Middle East partners and our European partners. I think there's virtual unanimity among the Europeans that a revival of the nuclear deal is in their national security interests and the Europeans believe it's in the interests of uh, you know, stability in the Middle East, although, you know, there's differences among some of the partners in terms of, you know, how you you know you, you best reach a deal now when it comes to our regional partners you know here we're talking about you know, israel uh, and then gulf countries like saudi arabia the uae qatar i would say that the israelis are much more uh, sensitive about the nuclear file in particular you know, Iran is, is is something like you know 20 times larger than than Israel, and given the you know the Israel is a, a nation born out of the Holocaust, so they fear that you know they, they feel you know you, you can't take a chance with an adversary that believes your existence is is illegitimate. There's no margin of error. You you can't allow an adversary that that believes that to to acquire a nuclear weapon. Whereas I think the Gulf countries are less focused on. Iran's nuclear ambitions and much more focused on, on the proxies and, again, the, the precision rockets, missiles, and drones, which Iran's proxies have been using to, to target civilian outposts in, in the UAE and Saudi Arabia and um, in Iraq as well. Does Israel have a plan B? I mean, if it's arguing against the deal,
2: what would their plan B be?
1: you know when I um, I testified before the the US Senate Senate Foreign Relations Committee a couple of months ago and in preparation for that I really tried to talk to a lot of people from you know the left and right end of the spectrum about you know what is a, as, a, as a prudent strategy what are what are alternative strategies that I may be missing and you know I found that there are no this is, is, is a frustrating, Policy issue because you know like many issues there's there's no silver bullet there's no solution it's a, it's a challenge which you have to manage I mean the the Israelis and, and folks on on the right in the United States would say uh, it just requires more pressure uh, you need another. Uh, maximum pressure campaign to either force the Iranian government to capitulate or implode. You know, those on, on the left end of the spectrum would say, no, you just have to be, you know, more solicitous towards them, take a softer approach, offer more incentives. But really, neither approach has worked. The only thing that's really worked over the last four decades is actually the combination of the two, which is, you know, significant multilateral pressure, coupled with very rigorous diplomacy. And, You know, I think that, you know, part of the challenge here, Michael, is that denouncing a nuclear deal with Iran, uh, it makes for good politics in both Israel and the United States for understandable reasons, because, you know, Iran's leadership oftentimes behave like, you know, Disney cartoon characters, you know, uh, caricatures of villains, like the the way they, the things that they say, Holocaust denial, death to America, you know, the um, repression of women, of ethnic minorities, religious minorities. Like, it's it's a tough argument, uh, it's a tough political argument to say we should be easing pressure on Iran and lifting sanctions against them. It's a much easier political argument to say we should, we should be tougher on this regime whose, you know, identity is premised on death to Israel and death to America. But th- this is where you see differences between the politicians and the security establishments who say, you know what, as much as... You know we are concerned about uh, lifting sanctions against Iran and yes this deal has its shortcomings but you know what is the what is the viable alternative I haven't really seen any viable alternative that you can hang your hat on to a diplomatic agreement with Iran now I, I'm not trying to argue that I think the way this the Biden administration has pursued this revival of this deal has been has been flawless at uh, my critiques of it, like like many others, but I think there's no good alternative to a diplomatic agreement with Iran that, you know, hopefully buys us some time. So, Karim, what happens, do you think,
2: if there's a breakdown in the talks and there is no deal?
1: What's your guess? Well, it's interesting because I think that both the United States and Iran have an interest in making it appear that they're not going to walk away from the negotiating table. Iran, again, unless Iran's end state, its end game changes, and they actually have made the decision to make a mad dash for nuclear weapon, it really behooves Iran to revive this agreement because they can't reverse their economic decline absent um, removal of sanctions. And this agreement is is much more favorable to them than it was in 2015, because all of the sunset clauses are going to be soon expiring. So it makes eminent sense for Iran, if their goal is still to have a nuclear weapons capability to revive this deal and get the sanctions relief. And then in a few years, you know, many of these sunset clauses will will be lifted and they, they will be able to you know have that nuclear weapons capability but I think that at the moment the Iranians feel like they can continue to 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 get more from the United States vantage point as well I think if you're President Biden and you know the goal is to to shift away from the Middle East certainly to not start another conflict in the Middle East and to keep you know the price of of oil low you don't want to escalate vis-a-vis Iran so even if you if it appears there's an impasse you don't want to walk away from the negotiations because you know you want to try to try to to avoid an escalation and you know i think one to the extent there is any benefit and uh, commitment to diplomacy is that you we we've very much proven to i think in the court of international public opinion it's clear to many that the obstacle here is not the United States. It's the obstacle here is Tehran. And that you know, should win you a little more goodwill when it comes to enforcing sanctions against Iran. But as I said, I think we, we probably could be doing a better job of, of enforcing those sanctions.
2: So it sounds like your guess is that once we get beyond the midterms that, and do some more negotiating, that there will be a deal at the end of the day here sounds sounds like you think that
1: this is such a a pendulum michael that you know the people who watch this you go from you know optimism and the deal is imminent to you know extreme pessimism and it's never going to happen and my view from the beginning is that it it makes sense for both i mean as i said the biden administration has has shown their commitment to reviving it and for Iran, it, it makes a lot of sense to, to do this. As I said, they don't have a sense of urgency at the moment because they probably are thinking that they can continue to, to get more out of it. But yeah, I would say that as long as this current supreme leader is in power and Iran's endgame hasn't shifted, meaning they haven't made the decision to, to pursue the North Korea route and weaponize, they're, they're still in pursuit of the Japan route, that it makes eminent sense for them to, to revive. So I, I would argue that it's more likely than not at some point the deal is revived, although I'm not arguing that it's it's imminent and I and I think it will require a change of US strategy to a change of US tactics to, to to get the deal revived. And Kareem one one more question.
2: Does the outcome of the war in Ukraine affect iranian behavior in any way do you think does it matter
1: so the outcome of the ukraine war is is important in several ways number one i think if if russia prevails it simply further emboldens iran and their belief that the us-led world order is coming down and and, you know further emboldens iran to to be defiant and, and and partner with with Russia and uh, and China and you know all other countries that don't like US led world order you know second the it, the geoeconomics of it are complicated because a Russia which is faced with international isolation starts to compete with Iran in global oil and gas markets in particular oil sales to China and so Russia has eaten into Iran's oil exports to China because they've offered uh, discounted oil to China, which is, you know, Iran's main source of uh, uh, exports. And so I actually think that although Russia and China have are often lumped together when it comes to their views on Iran, I would argue Russia and China have diametrically opposed interests vis-a-vis Iran, and that China benefits from a nuclear deal with Iran, and Iran which is able to produce and export much more oil. That's you know very much in Beijing's interest. Whereas I, w- I would argue that's inimical to Russia's interests. They, they don't want to see an Iran that's emerged from international isolation, and they like the idea of Iran continuing to remain a thorn in the side of the United States. Kareem, thank you so much for joining us. It's always my pleasure, Michael. Great to have you.
2: That was Kareem Sajapour. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters.
0: Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow delivered today. The show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Reggie Bazile. For more from this week's show, visit CBSNews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News.